Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking all about angina and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Tom Ford. He's published recently with Professor Colin Berry, a fascinating article all about angina in its various forms, how best we can assess our patients and how best we can treat them. I hope you enjoy the show and please feel free to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. It really does help us to reach new listeners. Thank you. Perhaps we can start by just asking you to introduce yourself for the heart audience, Tom. Sure. Um, James, well, thank you very much for having me, first of all. Uh, My name is Tom Ford. I'm an interventional cardiologist and uh, I'm currently working and based in Gosford, Australia. And Tom, you've recently written with Professor Colin Berry from uh, University of Glasgow, a very comprehensive Education in Heart article all about angina. And perhaps we could start off by your favourite definition of angina, Tom. What do we mean by that? Yeah, um, so I'm a simple interventional cardiologist, um, and I like the most simple definition, which is essentially involving a relative deficiency of myocardial oxygen supply uh, that is often occurring during activity or physiological stress. So in a nutshell, it's a clinical syndrome characterized by a deficiency of oxygen relative to demand. And we generally need three elements, don't we, to make a, a firm diagnosis. You've kind of hinted at a couple of them there. So the history is very important, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're looking for, in the NICE uh, guidelines, we, we look for constriction or central chest discomfort often felt in the chest or um, neck, shoulders. Um, to be typical, we would look for it to be precipitated by physical exertion um, or often with stress. And then finally, James, we'd want it to be relieved during rest or with GTN rapidly within five minutes. And if we have all of those three things, then that would be considered typical angina. And in your comprehensive paper, Tom, in, in Table 1, you talk about the classification of angina by pathophysiology. And you, you make a strong distinctions between patients with obstructive coronary artery disease underlying their symptoms, and then two other groups, people with microvascular angina and people with vasospastic angina. Can you talk a little bit for a few minutes about those distinctions and how there can be blurred lines between patients in those various groups? Absolutely, James. So it's an exciting area predominantly because the more research that's gone on, we realize what little we know. And I guess typically we look for obstructive epicardial disease um, because it allows us to then potentially change our management, often involving revascularization. And some of the limitations of an angiogram or anatomical tests, particularly for patients with obstructive disease, are a few few features. Firstly, that often we can miss um, flush branch vessel occlusion, so we may miss obstructive disease. Or what we don't recognize would be a smooth linear tapering of the artery, which actually does result in pressure limitation. And then I guess the third category of patients would be those with absolutely normal arteries, no pressure gradient, but with a disorder of coronary vasomotion. And those two diagnoses for for patients who have no obstructive disease and entirely normal epicardial arteries uh, would be microvascular and vasospastic angina. 
And what do we mean by microvascular angina? Can you talk a little bit more about that for people who may not be as familiar as you are? Sure. Um, so patients with microvascular angina um, are typically uh, describing effort angina, but it may be uh, often occurring at rest as well. And uh, what we look for, there's been recently revised diagnostic criteria. So a working group of interested cardiologists from around the world, um, which go under the eponym of COVIDIS, which is the Coronary Vasomotion Disorder Group, have revised diagnostic criteria. And this um, is a key learning point, James, because it's a, it's a new revised diagnostic criteria for how we make the diagnosis. And what do we think is going on with microvascular angina at the pathological level, Tom? Sure. So in these uh, guidelines, we say not only do we need symptoms and an absence of obstructive disease, um, but um, we look for either non-invasive or invasive evidence of coronary microvascular dysfunction. And this, uh, the term coronary microvascular dysfunction is a broad stroke to describe any abnormality of the coronary microcirculation, typically defined as the small vessels that supply the heart muscle less than 300 microns. And like many conditions, this is a very heterogeneous group. There are distinct different types of abnormalities affecting the coronary microcirculation, um, which can cause microvascular angina. And you talk in your in, again in the in the paper about things like um, myocardial hypertrophy, secondary to valve disease, or secondary to restrictive cardiomyopathy um, as possible causes. That's exactly right. So I guess the concept of microvascular dysfunction is one where we say all of the pathology is localized in the coronary microcirculation. But one of the key take-home messages of the article, and as we pr practice as physicians, what we increasingly recognize is there's a whole bunch of other conditions affecting the systemic circulation or indeed in the cardiac muscle, which can also cause ischemia, potentially in patients without obstructive disease. So as treating clinicians, it's important for us to think about all of these things. Uh, common examples that, that, that strike me is um, because we're so focused on the coronaries, I still remember a case as a fellow uh, in a multidisciplinary meeting where the, this guy was represented at a heart multidisciplinary meeting twice. Each time his coronaries were normal and he had very, very severe aortic regurgitation. And uh, it was, it's these kind of differences in loading conditions, which can also drive coronary perfusion pressure that we may overlook, but are an important contribution to propensity to myocardial ischemia. And we'll come on to ways that we can test and prove microvascular angina, but perhaps just for a couple of minutes, maybe vasospastic <coughs> angina. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So vasospastic angina uh, the hallmark of that would be nitrate responsive angina. So we uh, traditionally went under the name of Prince Metals Angina, where we had young patients often with transient proximal large vessel spasm with intense ST segment elevation, which was very short-lived and transient. And um, what we increasingly now recognize is, is a different type of physiospastic angina that we see, which often occurs with microvascular dysfunction. And that typically is diffuse and uh, diffuse constriction of the of the distal coronary, so it's kind of diffuse and 
and very intense spasm of the all of the arteries, and that's typically characterized with ST-segment depression rather than elevation. Um, and, and the characteristic diagnosis that we make would either be non-invasively, which would be challenging to, to do halter monitors and to find transient ST-segment deviation, uh, but in the cath lab, we can make the diagnosis um, if we fulfill uh, the criteria during an ACH, um, which is acetylcholine vasospasm challenge. And in the article, you talk quite a lot about the different approaches we have uh, dictated to us, shall we say, by the guidelines in various parts of the world. Uh, in the Here in the UK, at least, where I'm sitting right now, we, we talk about the NICE guidelines and their focus very much on CT coronary angiography is the first line test, uh, which you say is all well and good because it, it does give uh, reassurance, shall we say, that we're not missing obstructive significant disease. But then there's a whole group of patients, maybe up to half of the patients who have a normal CT scan, uh, but still have ongoing symptoms. And you're worried about those patients because we don't have a clear diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about, about that particular problem? Sure. Well, I think um, those of you and I that are practicing clinicians, we I, I personally do love CT scanning if we can get an instant answer as to whether the patient needs myocardial revascularization and it gives us reassurance that that, that may not be required. Um, but for a subset of patients without obstructive disease, they continue to be burdened by very disabling symptoms. And for these patients, the typical blanket approach is either to stop all of their drugs. But in my experience, what I often saw is patients are continued on everything just in case. And so that means potentially for young patients, a lifetime of a, a significant pill burden without a definite, firstly, a validation or an explanation for their symptoms. And we, as you say, it's up to half of patients who are undergoing anatomical coronary testing for symptoms and signs of ischemia are found to have non-obstructive disease. So it's not an uncommon problem. And so you, uh, in your article, you would suggest in that group of patients, if the symptoms don't settle down, then you may need further either non-invasive testing for uh, inoka, as you call it, the microvascular obstruction, sorry, microvascular angina and, and vasospastic angina, or indeed an invasive approach uh, with challenge testing. Absolutely, James. Um, so I think what you described there, the syndrome of ischemia in patients with no obstructive coronary disease is increasingly recognized. And to highlight for your listeners, the two commonest cause of that syndrome of ischemia with no obstructive lesions is microvascular angina and vasospastic angina. And what's really important is to think, well, how often do we confidently make the diagnoses of these two important treatable coronary vasomotion disorders in standard care? And I maybe would put it to you to reflect in your practice, how often would you maybe make these diagnoses in, in your practice? No, you're right. I'm, I'm sure I'm uh, guilty, like many people, of dismissing patients uh, with you know atypical chest pain with a pristine, either spanking normal coronary angiogram invasive or, or non-invasive with CT. And um, yeah, and, and we, sh we probably should go further in patients who have ongoing, ongoing symptoms, as you say. Um, That's right. And I think, you know, a lot of them have, are, have come to us and, and they're seeking a, a diagnosis. And I think I would be the first to admit, James, that we don't have all the answers. And as a practicing clinician, you know, these patients still are a huge challenge for me. And 
just by doing the tests, I guess the, the skeptic and all of us will say, well, how can we physically make these patients better? And I think that highlights the unmet need of a definite proven therapy to target possibly the microcirculation, which we know is probably not a one pathology, or well, we know for sure is not a one pathology process. Absolutely. And um, you you also make the case here strongly for uh, you know tailoring the the correct treatment to the correct patient uh, with with the diagnosis made definitively, which as you say is not always possible. But perhaps you can talk a little bit about the Cormica study if uh, if you've got time. Absolutely, yeah. So the Cormica study was a prospective randomised trial, and the first of its kind, James, for patients with non-obstructive coronary disease. And it was a pragmatic trial to look at, well, once patients have an angiogram, is it possible to then perform adjunctive tests to test for diagnosing microvascular angina and vasospastic angina in those patients who've got atypical or typical chest pain but no obstructive disease? And we randomized patients into one of two arms. The intervention, which... Uh, these were subjects that had uh, the full bells and whistles invasive workup immediately after an apparently normal angiogram. And then those patients then had stratified treatment of disorders of coronary function, like vasospastic angina, typically calcium channel blockers and nitrates. Sorry, for uh, vasospastic angina, um, yeah, calcium channel blockers and nitrates. And for microvascular angina, beta blockers, and, and we would often avoid nitrates in that group. And so the, the, that was the intervention arm, whereas the control arm, they also had the bells and whistles tests of coronary microvascular function and, and vasospastic angina. But that was done in a blinded fashion, firstly, to serve as a control, but secondly, to give us more information on disease prevalence in a larger population. And we followed up patients, James, for the primary outcome, which was a patient-centered outcome of angina severity at six months. What we showed in, in Cormica was actually by doing these tests at the point of care during invasive coronary angiography, um, not only were, was these tests fairly safe and feasible with no significant you know, uh, procedural adverse events, we were able to change the diagnosis in the vast majority of, well, certainly a vast majority of patients in the intervention arm had the physicians actually say, well, look, uh, I was going to give them, you know, this therapy, but now I'm going to stop all drugs. That happened in over, you know, 80% of cases. Uh, but actually, patients had less angina and improved quality of life at six months. That's that, that's a really so, a really important study, isn't it? In that case, because as you say, the the quality of life is often what the patients are most interested in, rather than necessarily a small reduction in very hard outcomes that we believe that people would be more interested in. Well, you're exactly right. And I think uh, quality of life has increasingly been emphasized um, for all studies and heart failure studies and, um, and, and in microvascular angina, which has a comparatively low major adverse cardiac event rate to say something like heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, then it's probably more meaningful. And certainly this patient group is so vast that uh, there is a desperate need for trials like this, and, and, and obviously this was just a small, relatively small pilot study with 151 patients. Uh, we, we, we recruited about 400 to, to get that population, but um, more work is desperately needed. 
Did you do um, a CT scan in all of the people first as per the guidelines or was this sort of distinct from that in terms of being a, a randomized trial? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. So what what's the CTCA provision in Scotland where, where we were at the time I did this research? Actually, we didn't use a lot of CT scanning. In fact, it's not widely used in Scotland as much as my understanding of the use in England. And that comes down to local training and expertise and availability, as well as, um, to some extent, distinct differences between the health service provisions in Scotland and England. Um, But uh, there is a trial that's specifically looking at the population who are having a CT scan, and that's called the core CTCA study, which is well into recruitment. Um, It's been run by doctors Navalia Siddick, um, Margaret McIntyre and Colin Berry, amongst others, in, in Scotland. That will be really interesting to see, well, look, this population is quite different, the ones that you're sending for a CT scan as opposed to an invasive angiogram. Um, because we know that after a CT, there is a small impairment in quality of life, actually, um, after CT testing compared to, for example, stress testing at six months. Interesting. Well, we certainly look forward to seeing that. And you briefly mentioned um, treatments there in, in your last answer and maybe tailoring treatments for different diagnoses. Can you talk about the kind of mm-hmm. typical drug classes that you use for the, for the different types of um, angina? Absolutely. Um, so we, well, as a you know, one of the authors of this study, I, I would certainly like to think that we can tailor therapy, and I would be the first to admit that we don't have all of the answers, and there is a desperate need for better therapy. But I think we can do better than just therapeutic nihilism, where we just throw the book at these patients and they're, you know, the the burden, the pill burden and side effect profile of all of these antianginals can be quite, you know, quite something. So in a nutshell, um, for me, beta blockers are first line for for microvascular angina. And I think that would go, that would be an important take home message for any listeners that beta blockers would be the standard of care for microvascular angina. And it goes against potentially some of the traditional teaching where People say, well, yeah, we give nitrates to those patients without without coronary obstruction. And actually, James, we believe from small studies that long-acting nitrates may actually be detrimental to patients in microvascular angina. And one of the reasons for that, well, firstly, is be- because of steel syndrome, where you have uh, steel from areas of already well-perfused myocardium that become better perfused and the areas of regional microvascular dysfunction become more ischemic. And secondly, we know because of the overlap between microvascular dysfunction and HFPEF, we've got good data from the HFPEF population that nitrates were actually detrimental in the NEAT HFPEF study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that these patients actually were walking far less when they were randomized to um, to nitrates uh, with a background of um, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Calcium channel blockers um, we can use for both conditions. Um, and nitrates are one of the cornerstones of therapy for vasospastic angina, but are relatively uh, contraindicated or certainly less effective in, in microvascular angina for the reasons we've talked about. We need more data on endothelial impairment, but we... Uh, would suggest that 
having ACE inhibitors or consideration of a statin for their pleiotropic effects on the coronary endothelium can be helpful for those conditions. And some women that have angina, which may be hormonal around the time of menopause, may benefit from estrogen replacement therapy. Yeah, we've got another podcast coming up, uh, I think in the next episode, where we do talk about that and how responsive uh, certain women can be uh, with a relative deficiency wow. of estrogen. Yeah, it, the really striking wow. results. I look forward to that, yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much indeed, Tom, for your time and uh, your expertise in this in this Education in Heart review article. Um, the article is completely free, uh, made free by your uh, kind uh, contributors and co-authors, I think, at the University of Glasgow. So um, everybody can download it and enjoy it. I do encourage everybody to do that because it's very comprehensive. We've really only touched on highlights of the paper, but there are many, many nice uh, tables and figures uh, that are really good for learning, particularly about the, as you say, the underappreciated areas that you've discussed. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for having me and to my colleagues and the patients that took part in our research. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much indeed, Tom. Thank you.